Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. We're listening to the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. This is episode 199, live with the Department of Energy and Environment in Washington, D.C. You can find out more about what they do at doee.dc.gov. We discuss all things fish related to the waters in Washington, D.C. I want you to take out a little pen, crayon, marker, whatever you have to write down with. I want you to guess what you think is one of the most common items found in the guts of catfish in Washington, D.C. Write it down, take a listen to the podcast, and let's see if you got it right. I was surprised what they found in there. Thanks for listening. This is episode 199. All right, so uh, we are here today in D.C. This is Northwest? Northeast. Northeast, that's right, the Capitol building. Okay. Do you guys want to go around and introduce yourselves and what role you play? Sure. Um, I'll start. I'm Tommy Wells. I'm the director of the Department of Energy and Environment for Washington, D.C. So, in essence, um, you know, we're a city-state, and I'm the director of, or it's like being the secretary of the environment, secretary of energy, um, head of office of sustainability, 
but then also really being the game warden in a lot of ways. So all that wrapped in one in our nation's capital. All right. Danny? Uh, my name is Dan Ryan. I'm the Fisheries Research Branch Chief. Uh, I've worked for the district uh, for about 20 years now, uh, coming up on my 20-year anniversary, and uh, been able to serve as the branch chief for the past seven years. And uh, I, I have the privilege of overseeing all of the research that we do that's related to anything fisheries in the district. Fantastic. And I'm Mike Matthews. I'm a public affairs specialist here uh, with our Office of Communications, Engagement, and Outreach. And uh, so I, you know, help with the outreach to our ANCs, our local communities, our local elected officials uh, concerning all of our programs from cleaning up the Anacostia River to clean energy and uh, the fun stuff like fishing. And Mike, what's your favorite hobby? My favorite hobby is definitely fishing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He's kind of our resident um, eager fishing guy that tells us what's going on you're gonna have to take a lunch break in the next couple weeks and come out we'll have to do it yeah it'll be a working lunch absolutely that's that's why we like our jobs yeah what what is the mission of doee am i getting the new acronym correct yeah doee what our job is is to protect the environment but also to um we have energy as well and more and more across the country if not the world energy and environment's been put together and so you know, certainly how we generate energy is changing and the uh, impact on the environment of energy generation is, is becoming more important. So our role is to provide energy policy for the district. We deploy and help um, through grants create solar energy that's generated within DC. We help fund buildings become more efficient so that they use less energy and cause less greenhouse gases. And then on the environmental side, we, we do a number of things, but in particular, like any other state, what Danny was talking about, we manage the fisheries. We, um, we protect the environment through certainly all the, your normal kind of regulations. When you build a building, we want to be sure your erosion doesn't go into the, the waterways. So we, we protect the waterways as anyone else would. And interestingly, in, in D.C., when they created the district, the borders between D.C. and Maryland and Virginia, it's not down the middle of the rivers. We own the full width of the, um, of the water bodies, and we're responsible for the full width of the water bodies. So if there is a discharge into the water from, say, the Virginia side from their power plant, it's D.C. that does the enforcement along with EPA and, and others because we own to both you know, sides of the bank. And you all just open up the huge borehole for stormwater runoff. We've got an underground tunnel to try to manage what we call the combined sewer overflow, which was very hygienic you know, in its time when they were getting away from outhouses and canals. But what happens is, is that as cities grew, these systems get overwhelmed and sewage on a big rain event would go directly into our rivers. And we're on two bodies of water, and then you add in, of course, Rock Creek, three bodies of water, that when there's too much rain, it would overflow into those bodies of water, just direct sewage. So the way we're going to manage it is that we're putting in about, now about 17 miles of tunnel that are a little bit wider than a subway tunnel. And they're 100 feet down. And they gravity feed down to Blue Plains where our sewage treatment is. So eventually it will be treated. But when there's a rain event and our system gets overwhelmed, goes in these rain barrels, these storage tunnels. So we just opened the first one, about seven miles of tunnel under the Anacostia River to protect the Anacostia River. So about 81% of all rain events that could overwhelm the system are now managed. When we're done by 2024, 
hope maybe even 2023, we'll manage 98% of all rain events for the Anacostia River. So that's a big deal because it takes the E. coli caused by humans out of the waterways. The number one reason why you, you shouldn't be swimming in the river is almost always has to do with E. coli for people. Fish, more sensitive to, to all the other things in the eco change and the, the bioaccumulation of other types of pollutants. But for humans, the main problem um, is E. coli. And the Anacostia River is not that far away from being a swimmable river. It's amazing. It's a major investment. Yeah. It, um, the ratepayers are paying for it. It's $2.7 billion. But, you know, I think there's a movement across the country to restore nature in our urban areas. And that's what we're doing in D.C. We're restoring nature in the urban areas. We're paying attention to what's indigenous, not indigenous, what's invasive, and trying to bring a lot of things back, like the American Shad. You know, we've, um, through the work of Danny and his team, and working with the other states along the river, they've essentially met the mark that where you can say that the Shad, the American Shad, has been fully restored to the Potomac River. And so this whole... Um, restoring nature to urban areas is um, is real. And I'll, I will say that when you guys outlawed styrofoam, I see a lot less of it on the, the shorelines now, just in the last year or so. Well, D.C.'s led the nation in, first off, creating a bag fee. We had an, almost an immediate drop of 65% of disposable plastic bags that we found in the river. And now with the styrofoam ban, that was one of the number one pollutants for trash. And now we have to get at the other things. We have to get at the plastics and other things, but we are making great headway, thanks. Any chance of making deposits for plastic bottles? Well, let me say that there hasn't been one in the continental US for almost 30 years. The manufacturers and the corporations that profit off these things um, have done a great job of, of coming up with ways to beat bottle bills. And in fact, they're getting scaled back in, the, in, in a couple of states where they have a bottle bill. So we're going to have to come up with something more creative to, we're going to have to come up with a new way to do it. The, let, let me just say that the, whether you're Coke, Nestle, Pepsi, any of these guys, they don't want bottle bills. They claim that they're going to take stewardship of their product, but they don't want bottle bills. And I would love to have a bottle bill, but they've gotten very good at beating these back. It. And in D.C., we're such a small jurisdiction. If you did a deposit, you'd probably need to engage at least Northern Virginia and, um, and parts of Maryland for it to work. So it makes it harder for us. We could probably pass the bottle bill in D.C., but to make it work with the deposit, you, we would need our, our neighboring jurisdictions to do it with us, we believe. Okay. I'm done with that. All right. Well, let's talk about the waters. Uh, maybe go from smallest to largest. Do we want Rock Creek too be included? Mm-hmm. So Rock Creek, Anacostia, and the Potomac. You yeah. want to talk about the size of them? What, what species of fish? So as people that might be listening in other parts of the world or country that aren't familiar with some of the fish, what will we find in DC waters? Well, those those are the three main tributaries that we have in the district. Uh, starting with Rock Creek, that would be the smallest, and uh, that's a uh, that's a Piedmont type stream that flows into the Potomac River. Um, and you, you would find the type, the types of species that you would find there would be typical of any uh, Piedmont type stream that you would see along the eastern seaboard. Uh, so you'll have you'll have some of your 
uh, native sunfish species uh, like red ear sunfish um, and long ear sunfish or red breast sunfish and long ear sunfish. And then you'll have a lot of introduced species like largemouth bass, smallmouth bass, bluegill, pumpkin seed. Um, and then there are also a lot of, a lot of different darters. Um, there are a lot of minnows, uh, nothing that's really unique uh, to Rock Creek. Uh, but it is unique to a Piedmont-type stream on the eastern seaboard. Um, then, of course, we have the Anacostia River, uh, which is a tributary that eventually flows into the Potomac River. Um, we have about 95 species that we see between those two rivers. Uh, at least that's what we've cataloged over the last 25 or 30 years. Um, there's about 50 of those species we see on a regular basis. And... Um, and there are a few species that would be unique to each tributary. Um, so, for instance, on Rock Creek, you might see a northern hog sucker. Uh, you won't see that particular fish on the Potomac generally until you get above the fall line. Um, and then on the Potomac, we'll have occasionally we'll get some species that uh, that will migrate up if, during a particularly dry year. So we may see something like a Norfolk spot. Um, or, or even a, a mullet. So there, there are some species that will come from brackish water uh, during a salty year, and they'll push way up into the district. Uh, but generally speaking, this, this, the species that you'll find on the Potomac, you'll also see those in the Anacostia and in Rock Creek. Um, so yeah, there, if there's a particular type of fish or family of fishes that you're interested in, I could probably go into more detail. Uh, but you want to talk about the, the shad? Sure. So the Alosa family and the Clupeids? Yeah. Uh, so the Clupeidae is the family, uh, and that's your shads and herrings. And then uh, in the district, uh, we have uh, four species that would, be, uh, that would be in the genus Alosa. So that would be the American shad, the hickory shad, uh, alewife, and blueback herring. And alewife and blueback herring are commonly stuck together and called river herring. So a lot of a lot of anglers would would see they would identify three species. They would see American shad, hickory shad, or river herring. Um, and then we have two species that are in the genus uh, Derosima, and that would be gizzard shad and threadfin shad. Um, and and those those two species kind of make up uh, a large part of the forage base for some of the bigger predatory species in the district. Um, the the allicines, uh, the alocids. Uh, those shads and herrings, those those are a uh, a particularly unique and valuable group. At least historically, uh, they have been commercially harvested, uh, and and that's that's probably the biggest reason why we find ourselves in the situation where we are today, uh, where there's not as many of those as there used to be, and we'd like to restore some of those populations. Um, the way that the way that we manage those those species of fish, uh, we we collectively manage them uh, along with other regional uh, entities in, in, a, uh, in a council called the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, ASMFC. And, and collectively, we come up with fisheries management plans uh, for those states that do have commercial harvest. Uh, we, we implement fisheries management plans so that those fisheries will be sustainable uh, when, when populations crash. Uh, ASMFC has the ability to shut down particular fisheries, and that's what we've seen with uh, with the allicine species. Uh, so, 
the, the latest the latest action from ASMFC um, came as a result of overfishing that occurred with river herring stocks. And a lot of those fish were actually taken out, not by a targeted fishery, but just, just as bycatch. Uh, so there, there have been management plans to address uh, the bycatch issues that are occurring in the ocean uh, when, those, when those stocks are in the ocean. And I guess that's something I should uh, make clear for, for those who would be listening. Uh, all of the allicine species are anadromous fish. So that means they spend most of their adult life at sea, um, and then they'll move into the tributaries during the spring season, and that's where they spawn. Uh, the juveniles, uh, when the juveniles hatch out, they spend, uh, they spend their first year of life in those tributaries, and then as they start to get bigger, they will migrate out and join the ocean stock. Um, with American shad in particular, uh, what we find uh, what's, what's interesting about them, you, you find American shad from Newfoundland all the way down to Florida, up and down the East Coast. And there's sort of a dividing line, and the northern, uh, the northern American shad, uh, they tend to be a little hardier, and, and when they come in, into the tribs to spawn in the spring, they can actually spawn multiple times, uh, where the southern, the southern American shad, it's the same species, but geographically they're divided, and the ones that spawn in the south are more like salmon. They'll spawn one time and die. Um, and there, there are some other differences with the amounts of eggs that the, the females lay uh, between the northern and the southern uh, same species, uh, but that's just kind of a, a fun, interesting fact for, for those who enjoy fishing. So, All those fish are illegal to keep on D.C. waters. Do you know off what the fine is if uh, you take if you're caught taking these yeah we're calling the feds all the time we see people buckets nets cast nets whatever i i believe the fine i believe the fine is 100 dollars per violation um and and i know that uh i know uh, national park service police uh they they coordinate uh, stings, especially during this time of year, to try to curb some of the poaching that goes on, uh, especially in the area where all those fish are concentrated right now. Can I bring up the snakeheads too? So I'm always talking to people down there, and they say they're allowed to break the laws with fishing because snakeheads are non native. And they'll always tell me the, the police officer said I can take them out with a snagging rig because they're non native. And the police argument and what it says on your website is regardless of the species, you have to follow the rules. Have you guys seen any of the snakehead snagging, by the way? Yeah. So over the over the past several years, it's it's become it's, crazy. it's become quite popular to harvest them uh, using. Uh, it looks like a frog gig. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so people are spearing them and gigging them, and it's very effective. Um, and, and they are an invasive species, so I guess that's one of those areas where, uh, where we need to do a little bit of work to, uh, to get the regulation to, to match up with, with what our environmental goals are. Um, but yeah, we certainly, we certainly don't want to advocate people going out and breaking the law uh, just because it's an invasive. But, yeah, but we do want to get the, the snakeheads out, and so... You know, there's no value in protecting the the population of snakeheads, and you know, they 
they sell themselves. They're they're a, a very good tasting fish, and so I, I think we do. You know, a lot of our laws did not necessarily envision harvesting. Um, I got a ten foot piece of foam just blew off a building behind you. <laughs> It's in the bike lane. It's circular. Sorry, I'm seeing everything blowing around with the cold front that came through today. Yeah, it's a. Yeah, I um I rode my bike in and I was sweating when I got here, and now I know I'm going to be going home in the cold. Yeah, but yeah, we want this you know people to be able to go out and get snakehead and take them out, and we're in our omnibus fishing fisheries bill. We put in there the possibility that we can now create regulations to to promote and support bow fishing for. Snakehead, and the other thing is, is we want the blue cats out. You know, another good tasting fish. And frankly, if you take blue cats out, I believe north of the CSX Bridge in Anacostia, I think they're fine to eat. I think you know they, they get more compromised when they get larger below the CSX Bridge, but um, that's a good tasting fish as well. So the degree to which we can incentivize and get people to catch and pull the blue cats out and the um, and and the um, the snakehead, I think, is a good thing. Of course, it's the 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 fish that the bycatch that you know we want to be careful of. But mm-hmm. now Danny's the the biologist, and so I don't want to get crossways with what's best for managing the fishery. But for the most part, I do think we want to get those out of the water. Yeah, yeah. I think anytime you have anytime you have an invasive threat, uh, you want to do the best you can to minimize the impacts of that threat. Um, and as Rob and I were talking a little bit before we started, um, so far, you know, so far there hasn't there hasn't been um, there haven't been a whole lot of things that we can point to and and make and make direct correlations, scientific correlations. We we can't we don't have anything that we can point to and say this is significantly you know this this is. Uh, this is a significant change that's directly re- re- related to uh, the blue cat invasion. Uh, we, we can't even find weak correlations. A lot of that has to do with just the amount of biomass that's in the river. Um, so we do diet studies on blue cats to determine what they eat. And while we're doing all that, we're still monitoring those other fish species to see if, if you know, there might be a trend or a correlation with a particular species going up or down. And, and I have to say that was one of the most fun parts about my job is I went out with these guys in one of their work boats. We went out in the evening. It was a beautiful evening. In the spring, we went up um, the Potomac River out by Fletcher's. And they put their claws, dropped them into the water, ran the current through them, shocked the fish. You start seeing all these fish coming up. And then they plucked out the, the blue cats, put them in a kind of a live well in the boat. But we did this going up basically into the rapids. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you float down, shock, and then take a net, pull some of these fish out, the ones that you want. And it's a, it's a pretty remarkable experience. And then when it got dark, these guys pulled over to the side, tied up the boat, turned down these floods, lights into the boat, and then they went to work. And they cut open the blue cats. They um, cataloged and weighed everything that they were eating. And, um, you know, part of this study that they've done to see, okay, during the spring when shad and other fish are running, what are the blue cats eating? And then they also count what comes up and they do the shocking to see what the impact is on the population. What's the strangest thing you've pulled out of a blue cat's gut? That is a good question. Um, 
so there've been there've been a lot of uh, a lot of cigar wrappers, uh, like little cigarillo uh, wrappers. I guess that uh, would look like a little fish in the water. Yeah, a translucent, the same length. Yeah, we've also uh, baby ducks. Um, there've been yeah it cans. I mean, just it, anything that you can imagine that that will fit in their mouth. Uh, they'll they'll eat. Now, they, they do become they do become piscivorous uh, the larger they get. Um, they, they're they're omnivorous until they reach about 24, 26 inches, and then they kind of switch over to, to strictly piscivorous, uh, which means fish eaters. Uh, but yeah, they'll they'll eat just about whatever they can fit in their mouth. So yeah, we've. Uh, I, I guess the I guess the most impressive thing that we've ever removed from the gut of a blue cat was another blue cat that was not much smaller. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen videos of gulper catfish on YouTube yeah. that'll eat something their size and it's mind-boggling. Yeah. There's a new topwater lure that is in the shape of a duck. It's probably not too new, but there's a new uh, viral video that's going around right now for a muskie and pike and, you know, these ducks that are just a couple treble hooks on them being pulled across the lake. Wow. So it's exciting. Yeah, we've got a place where I grew up on in Minnesota, Lake Mille Lacs, and the muskie get, you know, 55 inches up there, and, and they, they do eat um, they eat ducks pretty regularly. But also, the, the new thing has been, you know, Rob, I don't know if you've ever done this, I haven't, but it's to try to fly fish for a muskie. Oh, yeah. There was one caught uh, in uh, D.C. last year, Roosevelt Island. Yeah. Tiger muskie. That would be pretty thrilling. Oh, yeah. That was on accident. He wasn't yeah. trying to catch him. Because when you do try to catch a muskie, it doesn't really work. Yeah. <laughs> we caught one in Burke Lake by accident years ago. You go out to target them and you get nothing. Mm-hmm. Were you doing the figure eight to get them? Or? No, we were casting a bluegill and it ate a little itty bitty fly like that big. We think it just got hooked. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I was not prepared. <laughs> All right. Um, so let's talk about the shad. Why are shad so important to DC? Well, you know, important in a lot of different ways, but one way, you know, two ways in particular. One is that the history of, of um, the Native Americans, of why this was such a great place for them to have their villages live from the very beginning of, of human occupation in this region, had to do with the you know, how plentiful it was to have different animals and such, but in particular the shad. As you know, that when, you know, Captain John Smith came up here and there'd be a shad run, they like to say that you could almost walk, you know, from one bank side of the river to the other across the top of the shad that was so thick with shad. So it was obviously a very plentiful protein source. But then, you know, thinking the history of our country, some say that George Washington wouldn't have made it out of Valley Forge, but for the shad run and that it helped feed the troops after not eating much protein or much to eat during the winter. So for this area in particular, the American shad is, is a fish that's, it's the reason why some, you know, early Native Americans even lived here, but it's also part of the history of, you know, we're a city located at the convergence of two rivers and the shad have been, you know, certainly a major part of that. Danny, you want to add to that? Uh, just the other, the other obvious thing is that you know, I, I work for you know I work for the district Department of Energy and Environment, uh, but we're we're funded by U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and and part of what we do 
part of what we do is to uh, is to promote fishing, and American shad are just a great fish to go fishing for. Uh, they're they're strong. They're they're athletic. They're acrobatic. They like to go airborne. Uh, so you know, for a fly fishing enthusiast or even somebody fishing with light tackle, um, you know, I, I can still remember so many stories from my grandfather talking about the big white shad runs on the Potomac. And, and fortunately, guys are still able to experience that today. So uh, historically, as Director Wells said, certainly important. Uh, but even, even, for, even for what I'm so focused on, just trying to promote recreational fishing, um, it's, it's a great species to, to focus on for that. Is there a commercial importance? You can't harvest and sell them, but tackle, uh, tourism. I'm trying to make this a destination fishery. People go to the South for Bones. They go to the Great Lakes for steelhead. They go to Northeast for stripers. There's really nowhere you're going to catch as many fish this big in a short period of time as you can do around Fletcher's to Little Falls. It's absolutely mind-boggling, and people need to start traveling for this. But there's not a whole lot of tackle shops. There's only like, two places now to buy licenses. Is licenses a big – do you guys make a lot of money on that? Well, we – you know, I'm glad to bring that up because – we believe that that often when you think of Washington, D.C. or any urban area, you don't think about great sport fishing. And what you just described, it really is exciting, great sport fishing here. Now, there are folks that like to keep it their secret. This is their favorite place to fish, especially during um, shad run season. And, um, and so there's people that have always known about it, you know, like your grandfather. But... It is also something that we would like, we're very proud of. And as Danny says, part of our job is to promote fishing in the fisheries of, um, of this area. And so it's becoming more and more known already. Now, in terms of the fishing licenses, our fishing licenses are the best deals in the whole country. Oh, absolutely. Our By fishing license, you can go online, pay your 10 bucks and print it out and you're legal. My clients love it. it it's, um, it's a $10 um, fishing license. And no other, you know, special riders on them or anything, or special stamps. Ten bucks, and so it's the best deal in the country. And we sell about eight thousand plus um, fishing licenses per year. We're we're starting to see that go up some, but I think we're you know, we're this year what we're calling the year of the Anacostia. One of the things we're doing is um, it's promoting fishing more. I have um, challenged my staff for us to figure out a way to double the number of fishing licenses that we sell this year. And so we have to make them easier to get. We have to get people to learn more about why it's so exciting to fish in this area. And also, you know, there's, for some of the fish that, that people fish for that they may want to eat, it's, the fish have gotten a whole lot healthier, especially the fish that are not anadromous. The ones that stay in the district like up the Anacostia River, those fish have gotten a whole lot healthier over the past 10 or 15 years. And the further up you go up the Anacostia River, the healthier those fish are. There, there may be, you know, some limits on how often you eat it, especially if you're uh, a pregnant mom or a little kid. But beyond that, there's, um, the limits are not that different than they would be in most other states. It's always getting better. But the Potomac just got a B rating? Yeah, um, the the it's pretty rigorous, um, you know, system of rating the rivers, and the Potomac just got upgraded to B. And you know, an A river would be a river that was not going through a city, 
You know, we're going to shoot for A, but what that means is that when you stop pollution from coming into a river, when you get the grasses growing again, that once nature takes hold, it starts, no matter what you do, it starts taking over itself and repopulating fish. And the whole reason that fish initially were coming there start coming back. I think that, um, that, that there's, I don't know if you're seeing the return to some fish that you haven't seen for a long time. I know, for example, we also track birds. We've got ravens nesting in the city again, first time in a hundred years. The, the one of the bridges. That's right. That's secret. That's right. That's exactly yeah. right. We saw Nelson Sparrow. Hadn't seen one for 116 years. It's coming back into the district. We've got two or three nesting eagles right in Washington, D.C., and they had been absent for over 50 years, and they're on their third generation. So we're seeing the same thing in the waterways, I, I suspect, Danny. Yeah, I, I, I think that's one of the reasons why we wanted to identify the American shad as, as the district fish, because it really is an example of that. Uh, we, talk about, we talk about good fishing opportunities, and um, you, know, you, you can go up and down the coast, and you will find American shad in the headwaters of a lot of different rivers and streams um, in the spring, but the Potomac is by far the best. And, and out, of, out of all of those other uh, rivers up and down the coast, ASMFC has, has still, uh, they're, they're reluctant to say that, that there's been any improvement at all because there hasn't been, uh, even with stocking efforts. But the Potomac, uh, it, it does have a robust fishery uh, for American shad, and the numbers are so good that, that not, just, not just the district, but Maryland and Virginia, all and, and, and even U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, all of us focus our, uh, our collection efforts on the Potomac to collect our brood stock to try to replenish the other streams up and down the East Coast. Uh, so I, I just I think it's a I think it's a great example to focus on. Uh, the opportunities are great, and um, it's just a fun fish. And you know, as you know, the um, when we can take you know there will come a time when we can take shad out again. But shad roe is you know one of the delicacies. Yep. You know, on the rich crackers, pretty delicious. Yeah. Someone asked me today. Why they taste the roe tastes so good cooked in bacon? And I said it's probably the bacon. I don't need fish eggs. Uh, but yeah, maybe one day because I know people love to see it on menus. But those are fish coming from the south. Those are not locally harvested. When you see shadow on menus, yeah. It, so I, I think I think there are there are some there are some uh, provisions, uh, especially for our neighbors to the south. Uh, PRFC, the Potomac River Fisheries Commission. Uh, they do have a commercial fishery down there, and I, th I think there is a provision for them uh, to keep a certain amount of bycatch, um, and, and that's and that's true of, of other commercial fisheries uh, throughout the region. So it, it's quite possible that uh, that if you're seeing uh, roe shad, that that it's locally. Okay, it's quite possible that's Potomac River fish, and I'm pretty sure we approved it. But once a year, there's you know a festival down at Fletcher's. Mm -hmm. And they plank shad to show how that's done. They fry up some roe and put it on a ritz. And we'll be doing that on the 27th? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 28th. 28th, yeah. Saturday. Well, there's this event on Saturday where we're going to meet down at your building and then take the boats up. Yes. Looking forward to that. And then we have the family and youth casting call right. down at the ABREC this year again, which has always been fantastic. Yeah. That kind of goes right into the, the outreach side of things with all of this. Yeah, we... Um, 
we have hundreds of kids that, that we're helping teach fish. And we also provide grants to the Anacostia Riverkeeper, the Potomac Riverkeeper as well. And they have evening um, events where they teach kids how to fish. And, you know, once you've, you know, the first time a kid feels a fish on the other end of a line, that is something they never forget. And so we are, um, we see that as the future stewards and, and also the future um, naturalists, you know, for our cities. And it's, um, it's, it's pretty cool that you do this within the city that you, um, you teach kids how to fish. That's what I'm about is the urban fishing. Yeah. I don't have time to drive out to the mountains. And there's more fish and bigger fish and more diversity. I tell people the tidal basin has the most fish diversity of pretty much anywhere you're going to go. That is my, it's kind of a sick uh, hobby of mine is to get out to the tidal basin and especially in April and early May, these big old smallies that we'll hook up on. And you always have a tourist who will say, there aren't any fish in here. And then you, you know, three, two, one, set the hook, get that thing up there. And then you've got yourself, you don't even have to explain it to them, but a little lesson, a little natural resources lesson. I love the tidal basin. I, I think a, it's the most underrated spot. Yeah. I had a kid last year ask if there were hippos in there. It's like, mm. yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Big old small is so. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned the Omnibus Act. What came, what was the brainstorming on that? How did the American Shad become the quote unquote state fish of the district? Well, when I got here uh, three and a half years ago at the new administration with, under Mayor Bowser, one of the things that, even though I had been a city council member for eight years, I've lived here for over 30 years, I've been near the Anacostia, I did not realize the degree to which our Department of Environment, now changed the name to Energy and Environment, but I did not realize the degree to which we have a team of biologists, we do fishery stocking, we manage fisheries, we have an ornithologist, we, you know, that... We have a guy we call Dan the Birdman. We've got all these experts and professionals that manage the natural environment and ecosystem just as you would, you know, different challenges, but in Montana, Wyoming, Maryland, and D.C. So I wanted to, to find a way to teach our residents about what the department did and all the facets of things that we do. And, you know, an example is we have a wildlife action plan. Think about that. We're a city and we have a wildlife action plan. And the wildlife action plan is based upon actual observations of animals. We use camera traps. So it's not like what's in Maryland, what's in Virginia, then you average it and say that you should see some of that around here. It's from actual observation, whether it be the marbleback salamander or the Hay Spring Amphipod up Rock Creek, which is you know only found there in, in, in America. Or if it's um you know fox that are coming through, coyote, other things There's like that. Barren mountain lion sightings not too long ago. Well I'm not sure about the bear. It could have been Danny getting in to work early. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> But otherwise, um, there's a lot of sightings of different things like that. So I thought, how do we do this? Well, I know from my experience as a legislator, come up with a bill that you have to talk to everybody about and have a hearing on. So I said, let's have an omnibus fisheries bill. And I went to Danny and his staff and other parts of the agency and said, is there anything you ever wanted legislatively that you don't have? We're going to just put it in the bill. And... 
we did that. And then you have to go explain the bill to the mayor, explain the bill to the city council. You have a hearing, go out to the community and say, this is omnibus fisheries bill. This is why it's good. So in it, we put things like, um, we're going to have the, our own state fish, the American shad, which creates obviously teaching opportunities for young people and others that we have a state fish. So we, we did that omnibus fisheries bill, but we also put in there, as I'd said earlier, um, provisions so that you can make legal some things that people otherwise want to do, which is bow hunt snakehead at night. And, you know, if you ever go on YouTube and look at that, it's pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. And I know I've been to our local fishmonger down at Ivy City Smokehouse, and I've seen snakehead in the windows there in the, the coolers with, you know, arrowheads or arrow protrusions in the back of their heads. So I know that's how they're harvesting them to sell at, at um, the fishmonger. So to embrace it, to talk to the city about it, to get the um, legislature, you know, our city council to care about it, to help fund these guys, I thought that the best vehicle would be the omnibus fisheries bill. And it accomplished that. And, um, and I, I think it was also a way to tell the agency that you're, you're important. It's, you know, for example, when they found eagles nesting in the Arboretum, most people around the country assumed that it's the federal government, EPA, or somebody related to the national wildlife um, agencies that would track and see that, not realizing it's our Department of Energy and Environment, our professionals. These are the people that our taxpayers pay for as well. So that's the role of the Omnibus Fisheries Bill, is to really embrace um, that function that we have just like every other state. Any plans of making it like the Cherry Blossom and American Shad Festival? Well, I think having an American Shad Festival is a great idea. Um, when these guys are ready, um, I want to do that. Like I'm, I'm pushing the commercial harvest of the, the blue cats. But, you know, we got to be careful of the fisheries of how we do that. I know um, for a while we used to host a, a fishing tournament for snakehead. And the thing was, was that it was a, we had great prizes. We advertised it. But only about, what, four or five people, and they're generally related to each other, would show yeah. up. <laughs> and so might as well just give them the gifts, you know. They would, you know, only a few people would show up for that. Maybe it would be different if we did that later. But it's, um, you know, I think the other thing that you know is that it's not just the stewardship and the natural you know, re- re- restoration of nature in the city. It's an amenity. It's a reason to live here. It's, you know, I keep a little sailboat on the Anacostia River. No motor, just a sailboat, a little Flying Scott, down at James Creek Marina. I keep a canoe at the Anacostia Community Boathouse. And just thinking about living in an urban area where you can fish, sail, canoe, bird and explore and never leave the District of Columbia is um, makes this, I think, one of the greatest place to live. How much of D.C. is green space? Well, we've got more green space. We're, I think we're number two for any city in the country for green space in an urban area. I know that um, the Rock Creek area, Rock Creek Park, is larger than Central Park. 
and we've got some amazing national parks throughout the city. And then, of course, we have um, Kingman Island, which is city-owned, not nation- nationally owned. It's a city-owned sap, and that's a kind of a wild area. And there's the piebald. Is it a albino deer that lives on there or a piebald? I follow some people on on Instagram that are always out there working. I'm not sure we can tell anybody. Yeah. Uh-huh. Isn't it? <laughs> we know that. Yeah, I want to some- go visit that sometime. Oh, absolutely. There's a lot of places. I've still never done uh, Kenilworth Aquatic Gardens. I've never taken my boat up to Anacostia. There's just things I need to find I'd, time to do. I'd be happy to take you up. Um, the One of the benefits, one of the many benefits of being the director of DC's DOEE is I have my own canoe. That The director's canoe is managed and maintained over at his office at the AREC Center. It's a 17-foot green aluminum canoe. Those old loud ones. Yep. And um, I think they're best for rivers, not wild rivers, but, you know, still rivers like, like Anacostia. And um, I'd love to take you up. Yeah. Th- that stretch from the CSX Bridge up to Kenilworth, you don't realize you're in the city. It's gorgeous. It's um, from the herons to the egrets to the turtles everywhere. You see deer coming down to the water. You have... Um, what are those hedgehogs that are crawling in the trees that scare the hell out of me when I go under them? Don't realize they're up there. They're like, they must just be groundhogs. Yeah, groundhogs. But um, what they're doing out in the branches is unnerving when you look up and realize you're passing within three inches of a groundhog. But that said, there's wildlife all in there. It's beautiful. It's undeveloped. And except for a new biking, hiking trail that goes up along it all the way up to Bladensburg, it's um, it's wild. It's really amazing. And the snakehead fishing is really good over there. So bring your fly rod. You see them all throughout. Might have to go examine that soon. Yeah. Absolutely. And now I know after the event last year when the bill was signed, I didn't know there was a boat ramp over there. Yeah. And is that free to use? It is free. Yeah. See, I need to take advantage of that. And that building too, just being able to see all those different fish in aquariums. Of course, I had a five-year-old with me at the time who was not as interested as me, but... I could have spent all day looking at the snakehead in the tank mm-hmm. and the gar. We it had was really cool. When I got into office or into this position, the mayor and there was no elected official except for one that had ever been to that building. And it's our nat- you know our nature center, and DC you know pays for it, but it's, you've got the natural fish in there, so. I brought every council member there, and I usually, if they're willing, I take them on a canoe ride up to the Kenilworth Gardens and back. And at least one has um, some kind of water motion sickness. She can't get in a canoe. But otherwise, <laughs> I've taken almost everybody up there to see the AREC Center. I'm glad you saw that. Kids love to see that. And we have a great environmental education program. Kids come there all through the summer, and it's, it's a great thing for... Um, families to do. And I think you've got a number of homeschooled kids that come down there mm-hmm. to us as part of their um, learning about nature. Is yeah. that where the shad are hatched? It is. Uh, so it's the AREC is the building. That's the Aquatic Resources Education Center. And it doubles as uh, a place where all of our educational biologists uh, work from. Uh, so when you come down, you see all the, all the aquariums and the exhibits. Uh, there's also classrooms there where they'll do environmental curriculum with uh, with all kinds of different kids. 
Uh, and then in the back of that building, that's where the fish hatchery is. And um, we just recently, uh, last fall, we were just able to complete um, a new filtration uh, project. So uh, we, we've act, we actually have not been able to hatch shad for the past two years uh, because, of, because of some issues with the previous filtration system. Um, we were getting iron that was coating the eggs and suffocating the eggs, and we just had to suspend our hatching program. Uh, but we have a, a new updated automated uh, filtration system. Uh, we, can, we can monitor it from our iPhones. Uh, it's, it's really fancy. It does a lot more than what we know how to make it do, uh, but we're learning and, uh, and we'll be able to hatch fish again this year. So, so we're then pretty excited about that. When the fish are hatched from Washington, D.C., the shad, how can you tell the difference between our shad and Maryland or Virginia shad? So what, what we do, uh, we, we, do, we use a technique uh, that is called uh, chemical marking uh, or immersion tagging. And, and what that looks like is we go out and we collect, uh, we collect the eggs uh, from, from brood stock further downriver. We go about 20 miles downriver uh, to collect the adult shad. Is that down by Mount Vernon? Uh, right, yep. Right across uh, from, from George Washington's house? Uh, right there adjacent to it so we have we, we usually fish the area that goes across the mouth of Pohick Bay um, Maryland Maryland like Maryland likes to set their nets uh, closer to Mount Vernon so we Is that like Gunston yeah, yeah yeah so all of us we, we kind of have the areas that we like to fish and we've been fishing those areas for a decade so everybody kind of sticks to their to their spot um, but that's where we collect the eggs from. Uh, we, we bring those back to the hatchery and um, it takes about four or five days for those eggs to hatch into what we call yolk sack fry, which is just a, a one day old fish. Um, and what, what we do is on day three, on, on, on those, when, those, when they hatch out those larvae, on day three of their larval life, uh, we immerse them in a bath, in a chemical bath, uh, that has a compound called OTC, oxytetracycline. And what that does is it stains, uh, it's, it bonds to and stains uh, some of the uh, cal calcium bones in the inner ear. Okay, so the otolith. Yeah. Um, so once that, once that fish is chemically marked, uh, we release it. We release it as a larval stage fry, um, and then you know, it, it takes its chances in the wild. Uh, what Director Wells was re was referring to is uh, D.C. uses a day three tag. So on day three, we mark our fish. Uh, the other jurisdictions will use a different mark. So Maryland, I think, I think they mark twice. I think they may have like a, a day two, day five. Uh, Pennsylvania was using a day five. So each jurisdiction uses a different chemical mark so that when those fish are recaptured and the otolith removed and we can uh, subsequently... Uh, examine that otolith. We can actually we can actually tell from the chemical mark whose hatchery fish that was. Um, now, most of the time, uh, when you when you recapture a fish in a particular body of water, uh, if it's a hatchery fish, it's going to be it's going to come from the from the stream or the river where you uh, you know where you caught it. Um, we don't we don't see much overlap, um, but. Yeah, that's how we do it, and and we're actually we're actually investigating. We're looking into uh, maybe switching all that up. And the the new thing on the fisheries horizon is uh, is using genetic information. 
to to mark our fish and to and to and to read the data. Uh, it's called PBT, parentage-based tagging. And what that would look like is we would take a small biological sample from the adult fish um, and establish a, a genetic base. Uh, and then as fish are recaptured later on, uh, they could be matched up with that genetic base to see if, if, if they are lineage from that, from that parentage base. Uh, so it, it's gonna be a much more uh, precise way uh, to determine whether or not uh, those fish were hatchery fish or wild fish. Um, and, and if we're able to do that, it's, it's, it's cost prohibitive, but if we can move in that direction, um, we'll be able to, to take samples from adults and juveniles without actually having to harvest them. So that would be, that would be a nice. All right. I've got a question also about dams. So Anacostia free-flowing the whole way? Mm-hmm. Free-flowing the whole way. Rock Creek's got dams, so do ki- I've seen kids with buckets on the news. Mm-hmm. And then there's Little Falls. Yeah. So traditionally, all these migratory natural fish would go up to Great Falls, and that was their dead end. Yeah. Uh, well, the the fall line, the fall line on the Potomac is actually just about a quarter mile above the DC jurisdiction. Um, so you know whether or not a fish is able to make it past the fall line. Uh, just has to do with uh, the vigor of the species. Um, shad are not the most, uh, they're not the most rigorous swimmers in the world. Uh, so they're not, they're not going to, they're not going to leap uh, like a salmon. Like so, a snakehead do. I don't yeah. know if you guys have seen that. Yeah. Uh, wow. So the species nice. a lot of times will determine uh, where, you know, where that fish ends up stopping. But the fall line is generally a pretty good pretty good place you know, to, to stop the anadromous mi- migration. Um, so on the Potomac, I think, I think most of the spawnable habitat historically is open. Um, yeah, and then in Rock Creek, there is, there is one dam at Pierce Mill, uh, and we have a Daniel fish ladder there. Um, but that hasn't proven to be very effective uh, for moving some of the, the anadromous species that do make it up that far. There were a, a bunch of dead alewives yesterday, four-mile run. They tried to swim up the outflow there mm. and just splashed into the rocks and died. Mm. Yeah, those, those swim up. I've seen them go up culverts and yeah. just whatever source of water they can find. They'll just go up. Yeah. Yeah. Put their nose in the current and go. Yeah. So we've got fish that go pretty far up into Maryland. Um, do we we have a stream up there that has trout in it? We, uh, we were recently talking about um, Rock Creek historically had brook trout. I think there's yeah. a a, um, a branch up that goes into the um, Anacostia. Is it paint branch? Mm, yeah. That has trout in it. Yeah. And that's naturally occurring. Uh, they're stocked. They are stocked. Yeah. That's that's put and take fishery. Do you have any estimate of how many of these fish come back through here? Is there's, I mean, there's no really way to count. Are you talking about American like, yeah, shad? Yeah, like shad or hickories or white perch. Um, no, well, we do. I don't, I don't have the numbers right off the top of my head, but it's extremely low. Uh, let, let me explain that. So in, in, other, in other rivers where, there, where there's restoration work being done, um, the, the percentage of hatchery fish is extremely high. It's, it's almost 
And the reason for that is because there's, there's not good natural reproduction occurring. So if you go to the Patuxent, if, if Maryland DNR collects American shad, uh, juvenile American shad from the Patuxent River or the Nanticoke River or wherever they're stocking, uh, 99% of the time those fish are going to be hatchery fish. Um, on the Potomac, it's, it's much different, and, that, and that's because the fishery is so robust. So I, I, think, I think our return is, is about 1%. So out of all the, there's two phases of restoration. One part is stocking. Uh, the other part is doing some work to try to evaluate or quantify how successful you are. The way that we do that is through what's called a push net survey. So later in the year, when those juveniles are a little bit larger, they're still, they're still living in the Potomac River, uh, but, but they're, larger, they're large enough that we can catch them uh, with, a, with a push net. That's just a net that goes on the front of a boat, and we just push it through the water column um, and collect what's in the way. It's a 10-minute push, and we have different transects that we sample uh, once a week for about 11 weeks in a row. Um, when those juveniles are collected, uh, the otoliths are removed from the American shad that we collect, and they're examined to see if they're hatchery fish or wild fish. It's about it's about one and a half percent. So that that's what that's what we're contributing to the robust population that exists in the Potomac. Our goal is not to our goal is not to uh, to aid the spawning success that's already taken place on the Potomac. Our goal is to restore the Anacostia. So all of our fish are stocked in the Anacostia. We've stocked about nine million uh, over the past seven or eight years, uh, and that's and that's with three years uh, not being able to stock because of water issues. So on a good year, we're stocking one and a half, two million larvae, um, and and the hope is that that we would eventually be able to boost that stock enough so that we have some of those American shad that are making a right hand turn when they're swimming up river. And do you think that makes them turn? Current, just they're on that side of the river. There, there are a couple of factors. Uh, current is one, but American shad, American shad seem to like. Um, they're not like river herring, where you'll you'll see river herring in the in the spring, and they're just they're all over every piece of shallow, you know, uh, substance, whether it's a seawall or or riprap. Tidal basin, they yeah, swim in there. crazy. Yeah, so that they're they're looking for shallow habitat because their eggs are very adhesive, so they're 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 broadcasting those eggs, and those eggs are sticking to things. American shad are broadcast spawners, but they're not adhesive. And, and the, the key to their success is to spawn in a little bit deeper water um, that's well oxygenated. And then those eggs just kind of roll over time uh, before they hatch out. So, uh, so one of the things is, is having the right spawning habitat. The mouth of the Anacostia, we feel like, is, is the right type of area. Um, it has deeper water, and then it comes up on you know there, there are places where it comes up to a shallower shelf, and it's it's those it's those drop offs that the American shad really key in on downriver where we're collecting them, which is sort of like Fletcher's has yeah a shelf where everyone stacks their boats up. Mm-hmm. Now, so what's the likelihood when you release the shad in the Alcastia that just the fact that they came from there that they go back to where they were released? Yeah, that's 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 one of the tricky things that uh, that that we're trying to deal with. You know, are we just 
uh, are we stocking fish in the, in the Anacostia and they're and they're making it to maturity and then when they come back they don't make that right hand turn? Uh, we're not we're not exactly sure about that yet. Um, so you know that's uh, we're, we're hoping we're hoping that if we can move in the direction of the PBT tagging the, per, the parentage base tagging uh, that that'll give us a little more clear picture of what's happening with those fish. Well, we're certainly getting a lot more return of. Um uh, submerged aquatic vegetation up the Anacostia River. Now, one huge hurricane can take care of that, but absent a large hurricane, you know, gutting that out, you're getting, uh, it appears that we're getting a lot more habitat and a much healthier river up there. Yeah, uh, we had we had significant increases in SAV in the Anacostia last year. Uh, most of that was from the railroad bridge down. And, and most of that is related to uh, the turbidity of the river. So, uh, you know, when when you when you can get when you can get some sort of uh, vegetation growing, it helps to filter the water. That reduces the turbidity. That allows the sunlight to get to the substrate, and that and that is what helps propagation to occur. Um, so, it's it's a it's a slow process. And what we've done is we've we've started doing some, some SAV restoration uh, efforts toward, near the mouth of the river. Um, and and those, have been, those have been extremely successful. So right around the area of, of the James Creek Marina, um, we, have, we have several uh, what's called exclosures. They're not enclosures, but they are exclosures. And what those are, it, it's, a, it's, it's just a, a constructed device that we put over top of the existing SAV beds or, or the beds that we plant, and it keeps, uh, it keeps critters out. It keeps blue cats out so they don't tear up uh, the wild celery. It keeps the waterfowl out so they don't eat it. Uh, so those, those exclosures are allowing, uh, allowing that little patch of grass to exist undisturbed. And, and what, we, what we found is when we started doing that, uh, it, it really didn't take too long uh, for the area around that to become vegetated as well. So our hope is that as we can increase the amount of SAV coverage in the lower Anacostia, it's going to improve the water quality so that we can keep moving upstream. So yes, since we've been here just over the past, I guess, three years, we've reduced the Canada geese population, the ones that don't migrate out, the ones that are here year round. They, you know, they're known to eat the the grass plugs as you put them in behind you. They just eat it out as you go, and they're pretty devastating. So we've reduced that population by almost what eighty percent, mm-hmm. by eighty percent, and we're going to do it on an annual basis and try to get it down even further than that. But that I think is having a an impact on the ecological restoration is getting those down. Then obviously it brings down your E. coli as well. One Canada goose is responsible for about um, one to two pounds of excrement a day. And so by removing, we pulled out about 400. By removing them, um, it lets the river do what it needs to do. And hopefully we'll, we can keep that up. You're continuing to see the results from that. Another random fish question. Have you ever seen a native sturgeon in the field since you've been here? Uh, no. Uh, so 20 years, 20 years of doing fish work in DC. Um, 
I've, I've had two encounters, and both of those encounters have been with tagged fish. Uh, the first one was about 15 years ago, and that was a short-nosed sturgeon that was tagged um, by U.S. Fish and Wildlife. And, and that fish would periodically make its way into the district and uh, was, was occasionally uh, intercepted by tracking devices in the district, but it was never, it was never caught. Um, and, then, and then last fall, or last, last year, uh, we did have an encounter with an Atlantic sturgeon uh, that was tagged by VCU, and, um, and that fish was intercepted by, by our acoustic telemetry receivers. So in addition to all the other things that we do, stock restoration, working on invasives, SAV restoration, all those other things, we also have a really unique study uh, where we're doing a, acoustic tagging. So we have, uh, we target blue cats, snakeheads, and striped bass. We surgically implant um, acoustic tags into the coelom or the gut cavity of those fish, sew them back up and put them back in the water. And then we have receivers that go from uh, Fletcher's all the way down to the mouth of the river. So it covers 60 miles of, of tidal river. And as those fish make their way up and down through the district and then even out of the district, we can track where those fish are moving. Uh, what's, what's really unique about this study is the same technology is used by people all up and down the East Coast. So um, you know, VCU tagged this particular sturgeon. We were able to intercept it. All of that, all that information is shared. Uh, so the, the stripers that are, are intercepted in Maine, we get that information. So it's just a big, uh, a big data sharing pool, and it allows the fisheries community to really track what's going on with a bunch of different species. So we, we, did, we did intercept a tagged sturgeon last fall, uh, but we, I've not observed any. That's still pretty cool that one yeah. came through here. Yeah. Oh, I think eventually they'll, they'll be back. Yeah. These, you know, the tagging part is pretty interesting. How much do those tags cost that you put on those fish? Those tags are about uh, about four hundred dollars each. Can you get a bar or restaurant to sponsor, like the Glens Garden Market <laughs> Strike Bass? <laughs> That'd be cool. Get one of the breweries, like the DC Brow Sturgeon, yeah. or, or at least sponsoring the little tracking buoys that you have out there. Yeah, those are those are about a thousand dollars. Yeah, get their logo on it. Sure. Yeah, one of our local breweries makes sense. Well, I think Devil's Backbone has done that for the striped bass ale, yeah. right? Which is awesome. When I, every time I see that, I go, "Yep, that's coming home with me." I have so. it on tap at Glens usually. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Anything that you guys wanted to cover that I didn't ask? I think just in general that you know, it used to be that cities were all about trying to civilize them in a way that you push nature out. I mean, if you imagine what the cities were to be in the future, when I was growing up, you'd see the Jetsons. And the Jetsons, there was no green, really, not even a bush. You know, it was all metal and cement, and they're flying around in their enclosed capsules of jet cars. The cities of the future are the ones that we're creating now are going to interact, embrace nature. The fact that it used to be that if someone had a bat in their eaves they would call animal control now people call us and ask for bat houses to put on top to put into their you know the sides of their houses the idea of um, interacting back with nature and it's all works together you know the replanting 
trees in our public spaces that are indigenous trees encourage the particular bugs that evolved here that end up in the waterways that feed the fish, you know, and the fish come back, the indigenous fish. It's an ecosystem that we're rebuilding. And in D.C., I think it's pretty exciting. We've got great examples of success. We've certainly got a lot more work to do. But, you know, one example is, is that we have an island that was made from dredgings when they used to keep the river um, navigable all the way up to Bladensburg. They'd dredge it down to 40 feet. Now it's on average probably 5 to 10 feet. And after that last windstorm, right. all the water, you can really see the contours. That was pretty wind. bizarre. I wish I was here to go out and explore that. So what we have is that we have like this island that has rewilded itself with indigenous species. We've created a, a wildlife center there or a wildlife conservation district. So it's all about um, using the tools that we have and the, the talent that we have to, um, to restore nature, but it's an amenity. And it's an amenity for the people that live here to go fishing, fly fishing, to see the shad, to go shad fishing, which as you were saying, is, it's a unique experience. It's a very special experience. So that's, that's pretty exciting, and I'm proud of our city. You never thought you'd be able to use MacArthur and Wilson's Island Biogeography in DC, did you? <laughs> no, um, but it is, um... This is Director Wells said, it's, it's, it's a unique opportunity. And if I could add anything to what he said, uh, I, I, know, I know our branch in particular really appreciates the way that he has emphasized the importance of what we do. And, um, and, and Rob, even with what you do, uh, just making people aware uh, of the great opportunities that are out there. Um, I, I think, you know, if there's, if there's anything, there's anything that I could say to your listeners uh, as far as what they could do to uh, just to continue to help us out, uh, it would be to to enjoy what's out there, to buy that fishing license, to see value in what in what we're doing. Um, just thinking about some of the things that we'd like to do moving forward. Uh, some of those things are going to cost some money, so uh, you know they can they can support us financially by getting a fishing license, and at the same time enjoy uh, the great resources that are there. So I just I really appreciate. Uh, the emphasis that, that that's been uh, placed on what we do and, and just kind of putting the spotlight on us and uh, just giving us an opportunity to, uh, to have fun with what we're doing. But uh, we think it's real important, too. So, yeah. Where can we follow you on any social medias, websites? Mike? Yeah, we're real active on, uh, you know, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all of that. Uh, so we'll, it's at D-O-E-E underscore D-C. Uh, and so you'll see, hopefully we'll start getting some shad pictures up there. Uh, so anything you guys want to send our way, obviously at the Tidal Basin, uh, anywhere else. We have the Family and Youth Casting Call as well, Rob, which is the 28th, April 28th. Uh, that's a Saturday. So it'll be 10 o'clock, and that's at Anacostia Park. Mm-hmm. So right across from the A-Rec, right on the water. Uh, we expect quite a few hundred uh, folks out there, mainly kids. and. I think uh, it's usually pretty successful. Last year, I think the catch numbers were down a little bit. Uh, hopefully this year it'll be up again. So and you'll see us out there in the community, uh, all awards, pushing fishing licenses this year. The director's very serious about us uh, boosting those numbers. And I know I'll see you out there on the water at some point. You're coming early. All right, guys. Thanks for the time. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to 
www.robsnowwhite.com. media.com